chapter 4, beginning in verse 15 to the end of the chapter. When our enemies heard that it was known to us, and that God had frustrated their plans, we all returned to the wall, which was work. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction, and half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah, who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand, and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, The work is great and widely spread, and we are separated on the wall far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. So we labored at the work. And half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at that time, Let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I, nor my brothers, nor my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. Let's pray that prayer we pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be accepted in your sight. O Lord, our God, and our Redeemer. I may have mentioned this before. I'm not a huge fan of opera. I know there are people here who love it. Don't hurt me if Monica's here. If she's not, we're okay. We're safe. <laughs> uh, but I don't really get it. Uh, but some of the music in opera is fantastic. And I have a few arias that I'll listen to just to show you that I'm not entirely uncultured. And um, one of my favorites is from an opera, I think it's Torrendo. And there's a, there's a, a movement of a song called Nessun Dorma. And there's an incredible recording on YouTube by Pavarotti, if you have time, it's, it's worth it. Now, it's in Italian, so it means nothing to me, so I had to look it up once, and, and Pat, you can correct me if I screwed this up or anything, but my understanding is the title means None Shall Sleep. Something like that. <laughs> the plot is that the main character is basically pulled this Rumpelstiltskin move. He's challenged this princess to discover his name tonight, and if she fails, she's going to have to marry him or something. I don't know. The story is convoluted and silly. But he sings this song about the whole palace is going to stay awake all night <clears throat> because the princess has threatened to kill all of them if they don't figure this thing out. Uh, but as Pavarotti sings, they will do so in vain because in the end, he's going to win. It's worth looking up the video. The voice is ridiculous. But the line that sticks with me is this none shall sleep thing. It is a picture of radical vigilance. Now, I'm not a very good sleeper, as my wife will attest. I'm the one that's up watching Twilight Zone while she sleeps. Uh, and she's been trying to get me to take melatonin to help, and I refuse. I'm like, why? I miss Hitchcock then. I don't see the point there. But that's not the kind of vigilance and, and sleeplessness that Pavarotti's singing about, or that we're talking about in this passage. But there, there was a time, George still laughs about this, there was a time last summer, we had a mosquito in our bedroom. I couldn't see it, but I knew it was there, but it had been buzzed by my ear. And I swear they like to taunt you, and I can't stand them. And so the next thing you know, I have all the lights on, and I have the electric tennis racket in my hand, <laughs> and I'm standing on the bed, wearing very little, crouched in a battle posture, scanning the room, and I started singing Mess with the Dormant. <laughs> <laughs> None shall sleep. 
Until I have killed this thing, there will be no peace. And I meant it at the time. Now, frankly, I don't recall if I even succeeded in my quest or how long this lasted, and I'm sorry I gave you that mental picture. <laughs> but that is what vigilance should look like, is something more like that. Not watching Twilight Zone, but standing at attention, ready for action, with a weapon in your hand, ready to kill, in fact. And that's more like the vigilance that God's people are called to here in Nehemiah 4. Nehemiah is making the case for, and in fact enacting a regime of radical vigilance. In fact, you'd be hard-pressed to find a more dramatic picture of vigilance than what you find in this passage. There's a lot of detail here, but one thing that is not mentioned is sleep. That's what brought that song to mind. Uh, radical vigilance does not allow for much sleep. Now, I'm sure people slept. Otherwise, they would collapse with, collapse with exhaustion, and uh, vigilance would actually be diminished. So it's probably an overstatement to say none slept, right? But the point is that God's people as a group do not sleep in this passage. They are not caught napping. They are vigilant and ready at all times. And that's basically, this is what Nehemiah was calling them to last week, when he told them not to be afraid, but to remember the Lord and to fight in that speech. This is what he was talking about. This, this, this is his speech being put into action. This is what being ready looks like. This is radical vigilance. And first off, he, he tells us that vigilance starts with being aware of the enemy's schemes. In verse 15, he says, when our enemies heard that it was known to us, and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. So, so just being aware, knowing that the enemy has a plan, is step one to being vigilant. In fact, just knowing about the plan can actually diffuse it. The schemes of the enemy don't stop, but they are kind of delayed by that. Knowledge can be its own defense, because it eliminates the element of surprise. And, and that's why our government spends as much time and money and human capital on intelligence as it does, right? Because once you eliminate the surprise, the attack usually doesn't happen. People talk about surprise attacks. Most attacks, if you're smart, are going to be surprises. That's, that's smarter. And I want to pause there a moment, just about awareness of the enemy's plan, because we know that what Nehemiah is facing, this is, ultimately there's a spiritual battle at play along with the physical threat, right? He's not battling just flesh and blood. And so this application has application for us. Um, that being aware of the enemy's plan is step one in your defense. And the question came to mind, like, what would you do differently if you knew what the enemy was up to? How would you get ready for it? And we know we have an enemy. How can we be radically vigilant? Well, I think it it maybe starts with thinking about his motives. What would he attack first? What are the weak spots? And it brought to mind that Paul kind of addresses this thing in one instance. In 2 Corinthians 2, he's urging the Corinthians to forgive a man whose sin has done great harm to the church, and the man has repented, apparently, but Paul is concerned that this man's sorrow over his sin is going to overwhelm him and crush him. And so he tells the Corinthians this, he says, So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him, for this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you're obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that 
we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. I don't think this is the only application of the principles important. You know, my point is that Paul knows exactly the kind of place where the enemy is going to attack. He's going to go after the weak, the struggling, the sorrowful, the discouraged. And so that's where Paul rushes to shore up the defenses. Paul says, we are not ignorant of Satan's designs. He doesn't say, don't be ignorant, or I'm not ignorant. He says, we are not ignorant. He doesn't claim any special insight here. It's not rocket science. We all know what he's going to do. He's going to hit us where we're weak. So look for the weak spots and don't be outwitted. That frustrates the enemy's plans. And I think that's what Nehemiah is kind of modeling in our chapter today. He is not ignorant of the enemy's designs. And so he prepares accordingly. And so they all go back to work. Starting in verse 16, it says from that day on, half of my servants worked on construction, and half held spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me, and I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread, and we are separated on the wall far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. So this is far more detail about the actual defense plan than we saw last week. Uh, Nehemiah has this entourage of, of soldiers and servants with him, but starting on that day, he says he split them between construction and quartermaster duties. And that's the pattern we see sort of throughout this section. Half defense, half construction. No exceptions. You're either in the active army or you're in the Corps of Engineers, one way or another. And either way, you better be strapped. Everyone in this scene is carrying and not concealed either. This scene is like the Second Amendment on steroids. <laughs> the end of verse 16 tells us that the leaders were standing behind the builders, which I think, in other words, someone had your back at all times. If you were fully engaged and focused on laying bricks, somebody had your back. Nobody's going to surprise you. Verse 17 tells us that those who carried burdens were required to keep one hand free at all times, but not really free because that hand is holding a weapon at all times. And I don't know, can you like imagine lugging stones and water and everything else that you need here for the wall with one hand? That sounds ridiculous. How can you effectively work like that with one arm only? And I thought about this, and I thought, who can even relate to this? And I thought, new mothers. <laughs> <laughs> when Grace was born, I'm always throwing her under the bus because she was our most difficult baby. <laughs> She's a good kid now. Um, <laughs> But when, when she was a baby, she was something of a crier, not like Baby Joy, who's so pleasant and sweet here every Sunday when she's here. Um, but Georgia has told this story many times of how one day, uh, after I had gone back to work, she wanted to make herself a sandwich. And Grace kept crying every time she put her down. So she would drop what she was doing, and she would go back to take care of Grace, and then she would go back to her sandwich, and Grace would cry again. And how many hours did it take to make that sandwich? 
two hours <laughs> to make a sandwich. And by the end of this scene, they're both just sitting there crying. <laughs> the lesson of motherhood is that sometimes you have to put the baby down. But that was not an option under Nehemiah's regime here. You hold your weapon at the ready in all times and in all places. And if, this, if that slows the work down, so be it. That's just the price of doing business. Working with one hand is not fun. Some of you can attest to that. If you've ever broken an arm, you know about this. And in fact, working with one arm is virtually impossible depending on the job you're being asked to do. And I would say that, typically speaking, construction would fall in that category. And it's not like this means a 50% drop in efficiency, like, oh, I'm 50% down in arms here, you know. Because with only, if I have two hands free, I can carry a load, right? I can carry maybe multiple bricks and multiple items. If I have one hand free, how do you do that? It's just very tricky. It's a balancing act. I'm thinking this is handicapping the construction time by probably like 70 to 75 percent, maybe more. So putting one arm voluntarily out of commission comes at a huge cost. You know, if a sandwich takes two hours, you can expect that the wall's going to take longer. But they are not unaware of the enemy's schemes. And so Nehemiah wants weapons drawn at all times. Verse 18 tells us that even the builders themselves are not excused from this. He kindly allows them to use both hands while building, but he requires them also to be strapped. Every one of them is carrying a sidearm, including, I presume, the women, because warfare may be a man's business, but self-preservation is everyone's business, and we know from a couple weeks back that there were women engaged in the building, young women at that. And in addition to all that, Nehemiah institutes this alarm system in verses 19 and 20 because the workers are, by necessity, all spread out. If you're trying to get a wall built on all sides, that's just the way it is. You have two and a half miles of wall in a long, sort of thin, irregular line. And so if and when an attack happens and you want to concentrate your forces quickly, you need a system, something more efficient than just screaming and something faster than messengers. And so he hires a trumpeter. Of course he would, the most obnoxious instrument he could think of. I say this as a trumpeter's son. And having two brothers who played trumpet. But even the most obnoxious musicians have a role to play in spiritual warfare, I guess is the point. And Nehemiah keeps the trumpeter with himself. And at first blush, that would sound kind of selfish because that means the reinforcements are always going to come in his way. Uh, but I think the point is actually that Nehemiah intends to be the first one on the scene of any attack. He's the leader, and the people will rally to him as their captain. It means that Nehemiah will always be at the center of the action, and it also means that he can reinforce his own commands, because when an attack like this happens, and you're on a, a thin perimeter around a wall, the temptation, if you're somewhere else and the attack starts over here on the other wall, uh, might be to waste time until everybody else gets there first, you know, or maybe even to run away at this point while you have a chance. But if the trumpet is calling you to Nehemiah, who's at the front line, it's like it creates a little more pressure to do the right thing in the charge and to offend your captain. Nehemiah continues in verse 21. He says, So we labored at the work, and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. So all day, all day, half of the men have the job of keeping the weapons nearby and ready. 
And as I said, they're basically acting as quartermasters. Now, I don't know if you all know what that means. Uh, and how many of you are James Bond fans? Trying to help you think of it here just a little bit, but that's that's who Q is in, in, in James Bond, right? Uh, Q is short for quartermaster, uh, and in every Bond movie, Q is the nerdy guy who provides Bond with all of the funky weapons that he's going to need to do his job as a spy. Everything from like exploding pens to that car that turns into a submarine, right? That's Q's job. Q, the quartermaster, is in charge of the weapons and tools of warfare, making sure that Bond is ready. And that's what half of Nehemiah's men are doing. Which means every worker, in theory, would have one guy assigned to him whose only job was to make sure his weapons were ready to go. Here, they're ready. Let's go. And that's a 24-7 assignment. It goes from early dawn. <laughs> it starts from early dawn and goes to after dusk. And you may have noticed that, especially in the city, for those of you who live here, like, you know, some of you are out in the sticks, I know, but, like, the stars don't really appear at sunset. Exactly. It, it takes another hour or so for it to get dark enough that the stars actually start to appear. So, like, these are long days, is what we're saying. These are not eight-hour days. There are no coffee breaks. There's no hour for lunch. This is not a union shop that Nehemiah is running here. And then Nehemiah issues another command in verse 22. He says, I also said to the people at that time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem that they may be a guard for us by night and may linger by day. Well, that's clever. Again, no sleep is mentioned. By day you will build, and at night you will guard. We are officially a 24-hour business starting now. Also, I want you to all hunker down here in Jerusalem with us. This is where you're bunking. No more going to your villa in the countryside. We need you on call 24 hours a day. And what he's saying is he wants them fully invested. If you sleep somewhere else, you're by default slightly less concerned with what happens here. Because if Jerusalem falls at night, that's when the attack comes, which is not unlikely. And you're sleeping five miles away, you can always just be like, walk the other way. So he says, I want you here so that the survival of Jerusalem and your survival personally mean the same thing. The survival Venn diagram is going to be one circle now. No more going home. We're in this together. If you sleep within these walls, it gives you incentive to get them done. And he does not exempt himself. In verse 23, it says, So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. So he's setting the example. Nehemiah... He's essentially the acting governor at this point. His men are already sleeping within the walls, right? But he could invoke, you would think, executive privilege. As governor, you would think, well, he could take a nap. I can be a little less vigilant because everybody else is taking care of it, right? But no, Nehemiah and everyone in his household, servants, soldiers, administrators, whatever, they model the vigilance that he's demanding of everybody else. He's no hypocrite. He's not asking anyone to do what he wouldn't do himself. And they all sleep in their clothes, apparently. So this is different from hunting mosquitoes. Um, you can't do this in your Fruit of the Looms. You leave your clothes on, your belt tightened, your armor fastened. The last thing he wants to do is be caught in his PJs. You know, fun little Christmas story, true story, some of you may know this already, but during the American Revolution, 
uh, George Washington led an assault on a garrison of mercenaries at the Battle of Trenton on Christmas Day. And of course, the Hessians never saw it coming. They made a movie about it starring Jeff Daniels. It's pretty good. There's a fun, memorable scene as they're entering the, the town of Trenton. You see dozens of Hessian mercenaries pouring out of the buildings, trying to form ranks to face this surprise attack. And it's funny because they're all professional soldiers, unlike the Continental Army, but they end up fighting in their pajamas. They're out there in their long johns, but like with fancy hats and, you know, fancy twirled mustaches and trying to fend off this attack, and it does not end well for them. In the end, the entire garrison is captured and the Americans knew it was a single man. So it pays to stay dressed, is what I'm saying, and save your life. Lastly, it says that they kept their weapons at their right hand, is what the verse 23 says. And the footnote says that they kept their weapon when drinking. The Hebrew seems to indicate something about a water bottle. It's kind of muddled and hard to read. Uh, but the idea seems to be that they are just as on guard when they're eating and drinking. And those are drinking water. Hard to be ready if you're getting, you know, if you tip on a little. So they don't let their guard down. Nehemiah's garrison at Jerusalem is extremely prepared, radically vigilant, and the city never sleeps. Now, I don't know about you, um, but I cannot actually relate to this level of vigilance. I did not get a mosquito, as I recall. And I am a product of my culture, unfortunately, and that means that I have no attention span. If the statistics are true, that's probably not true of most of you as well. We have been trained in a screen culture, right? We, we watch TV shows that are about half an hour on average, some are longer. Commercials last about two to three minutes, and we can't stand that. So if we have cable, we flip channels to avoid those two to three minutes of commercials, and hence we're able to watch about a minute or two of lots of shows instead of just one. Very efficient. We use the DVR just to skip things. We use the skip buttons on YouTube. And heck, I use the skip button on Spotify to avoid songs that I personally chose to put into that playlist, but that I'm already bored with. <coughs> but I'm too lazy to remove it from. We as a people, as a nation, as a generation, are not known for our vigilance. We have no attention span and we lose interest. I read an article a couple of weeks ago about sermon length. According to the author, since the 1950s, sermons have grown almost twice their length even as our attention spans are shrinking, and he wondered whether that might have something to do with reduced church attendance. Now, he had lots of ideas and suggestions for how to fix this, but to get them all, I had to watch an entire 45-minute video, and I don't have time for that. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, the few that he had listed were not very good ideas anyway. I won't even get into it, but I, I want you to know 
that I have been consciously trying to go shorter for months to keep my messages to about 30 minutes or not too much more. Why? For your sake. And because I know your attention spans are fried, mine are too, and I don't want to hear myself go on for much longer than that. Um, 35 minutes starts to feel like forever. There's lunch waiting, there's football games, there's nap time. We in the West are people who are easily bored. Vigilance does not come naturally to us. And so this passage seems extreme and radical and frankly almost silly to us. But I think it's safe to say that what this passage shows is that radical vigilance is necessary to keep revival going. We've been talking about this as a book of revival. But you need radical vigilance to keep it going. Why? Because there will always be threats. Because we have an enemy who wants to derail the mission. And he is looking for the weak spots, the chain in the armor. And that can look like many things. We, we are not unaware. It can look like discouragement, like that guy that Paul was talking about in 2 Corinthians. It can look like temptation. It can look like your little pet sins that you keep to yourself. It can look like pride. It can look like impatience. It can look like laziness. It can look like anger. It can look like apathy. We are not aware of his schemes. Sometimes he uses bombs, like in Ukraine, as we were hearing this morning from Ham. Other times, he knows a good scandal can do almost as much damage. We've seen that even in recent days with the news on our denomination. I won't get into right now. If we want to see a sustained revival, we need to be radically vigilant. And the only thing that will motivate that kind of vigilance, I think, are one of two things. It's either intense fear or intense excitement and energy. But either way, you have to be anticipating something really big happening. And clearly the Jews of Nehemiah's day expected something big to happen. Is it something they fear or are they excited? Are they inspired by dread or joy? What are they expecting? Maybe there's a little bit of both going on, but I think the answer to how this is going to work comes in verse 20, and it's a part that I skip. And actually the beginning of verse 21. It says, Our God will fight for us, Nehemiah says. And then he says, So we labor. Our God will fight for us. So we labor. Our God will fight for us. So we keep working. Our God will fight for us. So we keep our weapons sharp and ready. Our God will fight for us. So we stay awake. It's not a call to apathy. The impression we get is that the Jews are not afraid of their enemies so much anymore. It's almost like it comes across, it reads differently, like if they believe what Nehemiah is saying here, and it seems like they are, they're doing everything he says, it seems more like they're eager for the fight. It's almost like something has changed and a switch has been flipped and they're chomping at the bit and you're itching for a fight because God will fight for you. You don't itch for a fight you think you're going to lose. 
And it starts to remind me of like that, that whole thing in, in that movie, The Christ a Christmas Story. Ralphie really wants that Red Ryder BB gun and fantasizes about taking it everywhere and killing bad guys and saving his family, right? Like, I think it's like that. I think the Jews are armed to the teeth, and I wonder if they have some of those same fantasies, like, oh yeah, bring them on. And therefore, this promise that God will fight for them doesn't create an excuse or a sense of apathy. They don't say, well, God will fight for us, therefore we might as well take it easy. No, they work harder, and their radical vigilance increases. They are anticipating that God will do something, and they want a piece of it. Well, this is now the third week of Advent. This is the season of anticipation. And we are now only anticipating Christmas and celebrating Jesus' first coming. The purpose of Advent historically was to anticipate his return. And Jesus wants us to anticipate his return. He wants us to stay awake and to be ready for it. That's not me trying to guess the time or date, obviously. He's clear about that. But he wants us to act like we expect him to show up and to do something. And if we really expect that, we should not be idle. We should be ready. We should be working hard and we should be on our guard, not least because we should be aware of the enemy's schemes. We know that the enemy hates us and we know how he thinks. We know he is always lurking around, trying to prey on the weakest part of the wall. And it is our duty to be vigilant and to protect ourselves and rally around the weakest. This passage is a great picture of the kind of radical vigilance Jesus wants in his disciples. And in fact, it's the opposite picture of Peter, James, and John dozing off in Gethsemane, isn't it? This is what readiness looks like. If any church, if any Christian is going to stay safe in a world surrounded by enemies, then we need to be aware of the enemy, be aware of his plan, we need to be ready, radically vigilant, but we also need something else, and that's the assurance that God himself will be fighting for us. Because we need him to do the fighting. If you take away that section at the end of verse 20, even the most radical preparations are not going to be enough. You can be as aware as you want, you can be as vigilant as you want, but you will fail if you are fighting on your own. But praise God, the church is not a self-help club. The gospel is not about us and how ready we are. The story of Christmas is that God already showed up. Our God already came and fought for us. He was aware of the enemy's schemes when we were ignorant, and yet he came to undo those very schemes by giving his life for us. He even died for the disciples who fell asleep. So if you're here this morning feeling defeated or distracted or worn down, there is hope for you. Because the gospel does not depend on you. God will fight for you. We work and we fight because he already did. The gospel is not about your work and your readiness for how you fight. The gospel is that even when you fail at those things, Jesus showed up anyway. He fought for us when they lost all hope and had given up. He didn't show up in the expected way. It wasn't glorious or flashy. He was dirty and dark and a Bethlehem stable, but he will come back in glory. 
he will show up and you can count on it. So we still have an enemy, but we're aware of his schemes now. And not only that, he's been defanged. So let's keep working. Let's be ready for a fight because it's not up to us. Our God who already fought for us will do so again and he will make everything right. He will show up and we can anticipate that. That's the word from Nehemiah. That's the joy of Christmas. That's the hope of Advent. And that is the promise of the gospel. So let's pray. Gracious God and Father, we thank you so much this morning, this chance we have to look at your word. We thank you for your word. We thank you that you are a God who fights for his people. Lord, even before we were even asking for it, to send your son to the fighting here in person, mano a mano. What can we say, Lord? We pray that you teach us to be ready, teach us to be aware of the enemy's schemes, Lord. Teach us to reinforce and uphold the weak. To frustrate the enemy's plans, Lord. And teach us to anticipate your return. Teach us to expect that you're going to do something. Encourage us with that this week. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Please stand and join us in singing the doxology. Praise God.